and welcome to the first episode of MedTech Insights Cardio Conversations. This will be a new audio series focused on the people and technologies that are rapidly advancing cardiology and cardiovascular technology. I'm Reed Miller, the commercial and R&D editor at MedTech Insights. I recently had a conversation with Dr. Stephen Mickelson. He's a physician and entrepreneur who's played an important role in the invention of pulse field ablation, technology that is poised to perhaps revolutionize electrophysiology in the near future. A decade ago, he helped found Fairpulse, formerly known as the Iowa Approach. Now that company pioneered PFA and Boston Scientific bought Fairpulse recently for nearly $300 million and has launched the Fairpulse technology in Europe as the first commercially available PFA. He also has worked with Acutis and most recently launched Field Medical, which will advance the next generation of ablation. So let's get right to it. So welcome. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Michelson. So you've played a, a huge role in the development of pulse field ablation, which as we've written about and other people have told us, is set to change cardiac electrophysiology and how arrhythmias are treated. Talked about this before, so but maybe you can just give us a, a brief explanation about how PFA works and specifically what problems it addresses with the way current ablation technologies work. Oh, thank you for inviting me on. We'd be happy to talk about this. I I talk about it a lot. Uh, yeah. The um, you know, uh, I think some of the, the the way that a pulse field is marketed is really as a non thermal ablation technique, but um, it really has a long history. Uh, catheter ablation in the heart really began with pulse field ablation, and in those days, it was called DC ablation, or literally a defibrillator shot to the tip of the catheter next to the target tissue. And it was a little unruly. And you had to use deep sedation to deliver this because it's literally a defibrillator shock. And so um, when radio frequency uh, kind of entered, uh, you know, as an option, the uh, that was 1986. Um, and people had the ability to, you know, perform these ablations without deep sedation. And this really led to one of the uh, kind of an early paradigm shift away from using strong electric fields into using thermal ablation. And over the last 35 years, you know, we've seen the evolution of that technology. In 2010, I kind of went back uh, to the drawing board. I, I can tell you more about that later, but the mechanism of pulse electric fields Yes, if it's done right, is non-thermal. It is a, it's a metabolic injury against the tissue. So very strong electric field, very brief, microseconds, meaning millions of a second. And then uh, causes uh, leaky membranes for the cells, which is incompatible with maintaining life. And if you open the membrane long enough through these very strong strain from the electric field, you can uh, cause the cells to necrose or, or apoptose, uh, et cetera. And so that's the the main mechanism is a, is that you really challenge the cell's ability to maintain uh, homostasis and, and, and die. Now, the, the beauty of that is that it, it allows the a, a huge range in tissue response. And so tissue healing is better. It's a lot faster. It uses a lot less total energy, even though the voltages might be two or three thousand volts. When you know, in in the last you know five to eight years, people became uh, aware of this technique again. You know, there was a, a huge you know interest, but I think a little bit of a misunderstanding of what it is. And so the mechanism of electroporation, i.e., fulguration, DC ablation, pulsed electric field, all of it 
you know, they're just different names for the same approach. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously it's uh, got a lot of advantages. We'll talk about that. So how do you specifically get involved in, in PFA? Um, I actually began working in the hospital in the late 1980s. I was sort of aware of people doing this. And uh, and then I became very interested in uh, working with Fred Kuzumoto. He was a brilliant young electrophysiologist in those days and then in the mid 90s. And, you know, I when I decided to go to college and become a doctor, I, I, I maintained interest in um, developing technologies and what's happening. I just kind of came into it through this journey of innovation. And when I wanted to solve the problem of how to improve AFib ablation, I went back in time and I made, a, I did a little bit of a mental experiment where I thought, hey, if you could reinvent AFib ablation, would you do it the same way we were doing it now? Or would you change it to make it safer, faster, better? Uh, I made a huge list of every way you could ablate cells from diphtheria toxin, alcohol, radiation, and all the thermal techniques. And on that list was pulse field. And I started just checking off all the, the benefits of that. And, uh, and I decided, you know, this is definitely the thing I'm going to dedicate the next several years to. And now I've dedicated a, a decade to it. Well, getting on that. So what made you decide to get more directly involved in specifically working with some of these innovative companies rather than just stick to a, a medical career in clinical medicine? Yeah, I, I think that was my, my path all along. I chose to go to medical school so that I could be involved in med tech development and uh, in, in innovation. But I never saw a way that you could do this without necessarily also practicing. And that's why I've always maintained a, a, a level of activity inside the clinic uh, and, and taking care of patients. Um, I continue to work even at Scripps Medical Center now. Yeah, getting back to the PFA in particular, so and, and your role in that. Uh, so you were involved with Acutus. Uh, we've written a lot about them. They've done some interesting things in mapping, and now they're getting into PFA. And now you've left that role for a new PFA endeavor. So maybe you can tell us about what this new project is and what was so appealing about it that it lured you away from Acutus. I'm very proud of all the work that we accomplished at Acutus and, and moved move that ball forward. You know, um, I've been in the interest, uh, you know, we, we were able to get that technology to clinic and, and it's, in, it's still investigational and in clinical trials now in Europe. And that was the second technology that I developed after developing Iowa Approach slash Veripulse. What, what I saw in the market was that a lot of people are um, in this very kind of desperate kind of place. They're pivoting old radio frequency technologies and trying to repurpose them as pulse electric field technologies, which makes sense. It's actually uh, logical. And some of the, the old platforms uh, work relatively well with the pulse field energy delivery. But you're highly limited in many ways by the geometry and the, the design of these tools. And I, you know, it, it, it occurred to me that, you know, if we really want to have the the tool set that physicians need, we, we need to take this first generation of pulse field, learn from it, and move to the second generation, uh, where we can really optimize the, uh, the delivery of energy over the entire range of, uh, you know, that the physicians need in order to treat, treat patients. And so I decided I just really wanted to work on a second generation system and, and take a blank slate and say, hey, let's reinvent pulse field. We'll talk a little bit more about that. I mean, if you can. So what will make the second generation different than the first generation? I think there's some emerging observations about what is pulse field and is there a limitation to it? You know, a lot of people are making grand 
um, predictions that maybe 50% of all, you know, AFib uh, ablation or ablation in general may uh, may be done using a pulse field type technology platform by 2030. It might be even more than that because there hasn't been a lot of focus on um, arrhythmias outside of pulmonary vein isolation. You'll see that the vast majority um, are really just specialized tools that do one thing, a bunch of one-trick ponies. And they do that one thing very well. But what we've observed is there's an issue with, you know, people talk about bubbles, they talk about heating um, that can still occur with if you use very high frequency waveforms that are biphasic, they're not as efficient as some other waveforms. And you can actually get into trouble with overheating the tissue if, if you haven't got your recipe right. And you'll see that, you know, there's some recent concern about vasospasm that's transient. This was described in the 1980s. And, you know, but this is a, this is a issue that can be managed and overcome uh, if you can play with the parameters of pulse field. Another another issue that people are kind of raising is whether or not uh, gas bubbles are an issue or or uh, or are they just a side effect or something that we observe. Arrhythmia. I don't think a lot of people have uh, put a lot of attention into the prorhythmic nature of any electricity that's um, delivered to the heart, um, and you know, and some question about uh, excitability and how to make this this uh, energy source tolerable. Uh, so that we can roll it out uh, for all the other arrhythmias besides uh, paroxysmal AFib and, and AFib in general. The fixation has generally been on AFib and, and pulmonary vein isolation, that kind of thing. But I mean, is the idea that this could be useful for lots of things? Is that right? Ventricular tachycardia in particular is a challenge um, right now. And maybe only 10% of all uh, catheter ablations address atri uh, ventricular tachycardia and or uh, ventricular activity. And because of that, you know, uh, you know, a lot of EP doctors like myself were frustrated because we don't have the right toolkit. Rate of frequency and uh, it, it, it has a, um, a te technically, it's very challenging to deliver reliable lesion sets in a, in the moving target of the ventricle. They can move centimeters um, and to get uh, the, the catheter's position right. Whereas pulse field, since you can deliver um, most of the energy needed to create a uh, predictable lesion, can be delivered in, in a fraction of a second. Okay. And the new company that you or the new project you're working on, what's that going to be called if, if you know and, and sort of where is that right now? Yeah, so Field Medical uh, is uh, located in the heart of Cardiff by the Sea, um, which is part of uh, San Diego. The focus of the company is on a focal platform uh, that will be a replacement, a one-to-one -one replacement for a, a deflectable uh, ablation catheter. That platform, if you had to ask a doctor, you know, you, you're going to get stuck on a desert island and you can take one album and your favorite food and you got to take care of all these patients. What catheter would you use? Um, and I would bet you most of them wouldn't take a specialized pulmonary vein isolation tool. They would take a deflectable uh, ablation catheter, which we can use to treat anything. Okay. Um, field Medical is is developing a new technology called field bending, which I think it's pretty innovative uh, electrode configuration that allows us to, to deliver a, a much larger range of lesion size with a, uh, a very predictable um, uh, electrode configuration and it's bipolar so it uh, it it actually promises to be a lot more tolerable for for almost any type of procedure you want to do that's what the hope of the of the program is and and we're working pretty fast 
uh, with a with a huge team of uh, amazing uh, advisors and partners and doctors, etc. Okay. Do you know what what your first clinical study is going to look like, or when that might be? Yeah. So right now we're planning on pilot studies in Europe uh, through a series of dosing um, protocols. Uh, to evaluate safety and efficacy of uh, over three types of applications, um, atrial fibrillation, of, of course, uh, but uh, ventricular tachycardia in particular is one of our main targets uh, because this this catheter wall is really being designed to, to be a, uh, to perform very well in the ventricle. And uh, we're going to pioneer what uh, a technique that was described in the 1980s uh, called kissing catheters where you're able to select two electrodes on, you know, kind of optimized catheters and choose the vector of the electricity. So you can, you can target uh, septal VTs, uh, summit PVCs, things that are difficult to get the catheter to. You said you're, you're going to start it in Europe. That seems to be the going against the trend right now. Well, how did you decide to do it there? With MDR in place and, you know, the, the timelines for FDA, you know, and and Europe being sort of similar from a regulatory point of view, the the difference in working in Europe is the the time to enroll patients. Um, quite honestly, it really just boils down to how how quickly can you enroll patients in the United States? It's actually very hard to enroll patients quickly. Um, you have to have a lot of centers. Um, in Europe, you can have a single center where you can get ten or twenty patients in uh, in a week. Uh, and so uh, it's a time-efficient uh, uh, pathway still, even though cost and uh, and regulatory requirements are very similar in both in, in both sides of the pond. Okay, that's a great insight because most of the things we're hearing now are just it's just not like it used to be. It's so much harder in Europe, or maybe yeah. just less predictable in Europe. And so there's been a, a like a shift in terms of at least the which regulatory path you're going to start with, but. Like, I think you're right. I mean, I've heard that before too, that people seem to like to get the patients faster in Europe. Well, that sounds uh, very promising. J- just to get back to all the different competitors in this space, you know, Acutus is working on something. It was Parapulse, which is like part of Boston Scientific. And, and uh, you know, there's a couple other companies in this space. So is it the kind of thing where there there will be many different PFA devices out there? You know, they'll be similar, but yes. there'll be different vendors or how's that going to play out? I mean, or there'll be some that is pros and cons or... How do you, how do you, yeah, see well, you know, it's, it's the wild west right now, the frontier and, and there's a rush for all the resources and the market share. And, you know, so all, all the, all the crazy pieces that go into med technology, um, are, are at play right now. Um, it, uh, I think Ferropulse is a truly disruptive technology. It is, it is something that, you know, uh, will be a very interesting case study going forward. Um, because uh, everybody uh, that has significant market share right now, you know, which is, you know, Boston's Webster, um, Medtronic, uh, Abbott, and, and Boston Scientific, and then all the other players that are out there, those lines of market share are going to shift because you have a minority holder in the market with the the, the most advanced um, pulse field technology and some clear data that it, that it's going to drive adoption quickly. And, and and it's pretty clear in, by the European market already that that adoption is extraordinary. Um, and so, are is all PFA created the same? Is one question. And and I you know I would have to say right now it is not. It is quite there is a diversity out there of different strategies, platforms, um, uh, recipes uh, of of these uh, um, uh, that are applied to treat. Uh, you know, uh, mostly atrial fibrillation. Everything's going to converge eventually. 
the other piece of the puzzle is once things get to market, we'll see how the IP, um, you know, uh, kind of falls out uh, and and how the use cases uh, change. Um, the way I see the world right now, there's you know a huge number of specialized pulmonary vein isolation tools because venture capital likes the model. Uh, AFib is growing at a CAGR of 14% in 2030. It's going to be really, um, you know, maybe a $10 billion industry. Uh, but the uh, but the reality is that there's also some very interesting uh, new tools out there that I'm paying attention to. So um, I, I think that the dust will settle. You'll see uh, you'll see that the the people who have the largest market share will maintain a substantial amount of that. But the biggest change will be a growth in the the Boston uh, uh, pie segment, and that uh, and that there may be a few wild cards out there. And one of those wild cards, I think, is how Afera plays into this. Because when you have a focal catheter that can deliver um, a large footprint lesion, and you have, you know, and, and you you can use a single catheter to map and to ablate, people are looking at that very carefully. Is that a paradigm that we have to uh, address in the market as well? And so. With all the uh, these converging elements, I think that the next five years are going to be quite exciting and interesting. And once once people making money in the United States off of Pulse Field, I think that if if not already, there will be a, a lot of uh, questions about uh, whose IP uh, floats to the top. You mentioned the mapping piece, and I, I understand that's kind of uh, how Acutus got into it. Can you talk a little bit about that? What other things does the company need to be selling with the actual ablation part? That's probably going to make a difference in kind of who wins in the long run too, right? Absolutely. I, and so the, from my point of view, and it's my opinion, you know, uh, no technology can really stand on its own. You, it has to integrate into a mapping system and a localization system, um, which are two different things. In fact, most of the, you know, probably half of what we do out there, as we reduce our use of fluoroscopy and minimize that, um, we uh, we rely more and more on these uh, navigation systems uh, that use magnets or impedance to get the catheter where it needs to be safely. Uh, because of that need for integration, um, you know, part of what we're doing, uh, you know, requires a partnership in in some degree, and and that's why I don't think that the market segments will change, you know, more than a few. Like maybe, you know, I'd be surprised if anyone moved more than you know two or three points. Uh, maybe maybe as many as five, but I, I'd be surprised because you, you can't really do anything without a, a good mapping system. And the um, that said, I also believe that. The you know one of the big issues that we're going to face in the next five years is there's been a lot put into improving our ability to see functional electrophysiology and substrate identification, so that we can more accurately target the arrhythmic substrate. We don't have to destroy half the heart anymore. We could actually selective. We can customize our treatment of of patient um, arrhythmias based on their actual data that we see in the mapping system and this pushes me away from these kind of specialized tools that for pulmonary vein isolation uh things like that when you when the in my eyes the future of mapping is completely linked to the therapy catheter side and in something like a you know i think the, the achilles heel here is that compared to rhythmia you know the, the you know getting a high density map with a really good with good algorithms to identify functional substrate and is a little harder with that tool than it is with a tool like the HD grid or the Pentaray 
And I think that the, as we move towards better mapping, that's going to drive the need for uh, tools that are more precise, more accurate for their ablation uh, in ablation. Are they all sort of on board with the importance of mapping? Because one of the things I noticed, Acutis kind of had to adjust their strategy. They said that they were going to actually take some of their systems out of some um, centers or, or accounts in their case that weren't really using them there very much. And I was kind of surprised to see that because I was like, well, why wouldn't you be... If you have the tool, why wouldn't you be using it? So is there still some education or some progress to be made there? They definitely have the world's most advanced non-contact mapping system that's ever been created. Um, and, you know, the uh, I would say, you know, more than 50% of the job of an EP doctor, um, it can be uh, performed with good localization, navigation, uh, that kind of stuff. And uh, it makes sense to me from a business point of view, what they're doing is to expand the, you know, the use of the tool. Because uh, the, the mapping system also is a contact mapping system that works very well. And so I think they're focusing on that from a business strategy point of view. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, the education part of it of, of how to use um, high density mapping substrate um, uh, diagnostic information that you get from these types of systems to drive physician decision-making on treating the patient. I think that is a paradigm that is start, it's slowly starting to get enough uh, data behind it that we'll have non-anatomic targets. And, you know, I don't know if most listeners really see the differentiation between EP doctors historically have proven a diagnosis and then uh, chosen a target based on the data and then delivered a therapy to that spot based on the performing electrophysiology study. More and more, especially with pulmonary vein isolation, it is a, a truly just anatomic delivery of energy to a location of in the heart without testing to see whether any of that matters. You know, we know that, uh, you know, people can have uh, failed pulmonary vein isolation, you know, two of the, of the four veins might be uh, reconnected, but they don't go back into AFib because only one of the veins was really involved in their AFib in the first place. And the data that we have to really look at, you know, knowledge-driven therapy, especially in the AFib area, has, is, is quite limited until recently. And now we see with all the big mapping systems that there is putting a lot of resources into identifying why a high density map and using functional information could could identify more uh, the targets that we need to hit in order to get more effective therapy for our patients. And I and I with that same paradigm shifting in the background, it informs me on what's going to happen in the future with pulse field. Okay. Because uh, both both technologies converge and they both depend on each other. Well, that's very helpful to know that as we look forward to kind of how this is going to shake out and what's going on with Acutis, which has obviously been a very interesting company to follow. Yeah. This is kind of a hard shift, but maybe just shifting back to your own experience as a physician who's involved in in all this you know, very innovative med tech. I think you mentioned that was something you always wanted to do. If you have advice, I'm sure you've probably given this advice to to other physicians who say like, well, I've got an idea or I'd really like to get into med tech. Uh, what have you learned? What could you tell them? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of doctors are involved in med tech. I mean, you can't be a physician without being somehow involved in it indirectly. The folks out there who want to invent something, take an idea from concept and bring it to the market. You know, that is, you know, that's a journey that's absolutely worth taking, uh, jumping in uh, feet first. Um, but it's one that, you know, uh, requires some bravery and a lot of time and effort. 
Um, you know, many, many physicians um, will dabble uh, a little bit. They'll um, offer, uh, write a few patents, you know, taking it from a patent, getting it licensed to somebody, that's something that can happen. Greatest chance of success is to invest in your own company, really. I mean, you have to be willing to literally steward the, the, your, your idea from beginning to end. And, and that, since doctors don't have a lot of time, is a hard thing to do. There are a couple of uh, great programs out there. You know, I'm a, a big fan of the Stanford Biodesign Program. Uh, they do integrate physicians who are interested and they're looking for active ways to, to uh, get um, practicing physicians more deeply involved in uh, innovation and to be not only thought leaders, ethically pure clinical trial um, participants, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, but they're, they're looking for ways to really have a meaningful uh, product in the end um, by having physicians and, uh, and industry more deeply involved, but in a way that doesn't influence the care of uh, optimizing care for the patient, which has always been a big concern, you know, um, you know, conflict of interest. And, you know, the uh, you know, conflict of interest is probably a great uh, topic for a future uh, podcast, by the way. Right. That's, a, that's a good point. Um, yeah, we haven't talked about that as much recently. Uh, that was a, a major topic conferences, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess it's, it's still going on. If you're talking about like, kind of what cardiology, for example, just really needs, what kind of uh, positions you really think they need more of? Is there a particular field that like, man, we just don't have enough input from this kind of doctor? The short answer uh, to the prior question is you, you just got to be brave and, and pushy on your ideas and move forward and get resources and, and you know be willing to be a business person to some degree. The second question is like, where are the unmet needs in medical device development or right. technology? And that's a much more difficult question to answer because if I knew that, then I'd be starting another company. You know, I see that, you know, the cardiology is definitely has an enormous amount of interest out there um, uh, with, and cardiologists in general are a lot more involved in the development of new technology than in some areas. Uh, cancer is an, a growing, um, you know, almost everything in cancer right now is biologics and, uh, and drugs still. But there is a growing uh, device um, kind of presence uh, in treating that, which has a direct relationship to pulse field. To be honest, probably the best place for people to get interested in, in being involved in a private, you know, a physician and private company uh, type uh, enterprise is probably in primary care where we, we always suffer the most. You know, the, the super subspecialists uh, get the greatest toys and tools and resources. And so maybe you know, more primary care physicians involved would, would lead to uh, a, a bigger change uh, and improvement for overall healthcare. This is a basic question. I mean, how do you just find time to do all this? You, you've got uh, appointments at a few different places that are not next to each other. I, I, I don't know if there's any advice you have on how to juggle all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that part's hard. You have to have people managing your schedule uh, for sure. Um, but the I, I arrived at this place in my life very organically. So uh, if it wasn't for support from Howard Hughes Research Institute, if it wasn't for support from Mayo Clinic, if it wasn't for the support of my extracurricular activities from the University of Iowa, which was enormous, you know, if uh, then and, and the, you know, and the the understanding from the clinical staff and the, and my colleagues that I work with very closely, you know, it, it would be impossible. Uh, but uh, but that that's something that does kind of grow uh, organically because it's something I've been I've been trying to wear two hats 
my entire career. It does seem that universities, at least the ones I'm familiar with, I live next to one, do want to take credit for a lot of that kind of thing. So obviously they need to be supportive on a day-to-day basis, I guess. Yeah. I have a lot of colleagues who, you know, like they've had different experiences. Um, and I think I was incredibly lucky. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, right now there's so much pressure from hospital administration to, you know, for performance um, and and physicians are mostly employees. So they just, they, they don't have a lot of self-determination anymore. They used to. Uh, so it's, it's harder and harder to, to navigate, especially in an academic center where conflict of interest is taken um, uh, to an extreme. But uh, it's something that's still doable. It's just that you have to make sacrifices somewhere. Well, okay. Well, those are all the questions I had. I mean, is there anything else going on right now, um, either in this space or in, in your, uh, your projects that you wanted to mention? Some of the most exciting things that are going on right now, there's some interest in the clinical trial efficacy of pulse field, whether or not what we uh, are what we saw from uh, Fair Pulse's initial uh, PEFCAT study, um, impulse study, um, it's going to translate into the uh, all the current studies that are ongoing. You know, the Advent trial, which will probably get we'll, we'll have have a taste of their outcomes in. Uh, at HRS this year, maybe by July, we'll definitely know, um, you know, what's the one year outcomes in, in that very large prospective and potentially superiority trial. I think that that is going to be this very disruptive by itself. It's likely to show as a secondary out, outcome superiority. And this is going to be very problematic for almost every technology that is being tested in clinical trials in the United States right now that's going up against Veripulse because these are all studies that have been done with a traditional non-inferiority structure. They have blanking periods and the, the Veripulse trial does not. The, there is a um, post-markets multi-center uh, observational study that has been recently talked about a lot where the outcomes aren't as good in uh, real-world applications of Therapulse as the clinical trial results um, from PEPGET series. And, the, and so people are talking about that a lot. I, I think it's worth talking about the difference between running a prospective or observational study today in an era where we have Apple Watches, we have very easy uh, halter monitors and loop recorders and all this stuff. So our sensitivity to capturing asymptomatic AFib, short, brief periods of it, is incredibly high now. And it wasn't five years ago. So when we look at the outcomes in in, in a clinical trial where everyone's sort of blinded, uh, except for the halter monitor that you do at that one spot six months later, or symptomatic um, arrhythmia that people report to the doctor with, you know, there's a lot of subclinical AFib that is now being picked up. And it's so having a, a, uh, a clinical trial outcome uh, um, is much better than your observational real world outcome um, it, it is being informed largely by all these other technologies that increase our sensitivity to subclinical AFib. I see this as an interesting side note and in the story of Pulse Field, um, because you have all these companies, you know, thinking that it's going to absolutely transform AFib, but what we're doing here isn't AFib treatment. We're doing pulmonary vein isolation, and these are two kind of separate things. And so with uh, with the ongoing dialogue about efficacy of something like Fair Pulse, um, we know that 
the efficacy is because these aren't remap studies is probably very high. It just kind of goes to show that the that as clinical trials and clinical practice evolves, it's just a moving target. Kind of going forward, if you're not comparing apples to apples from one study to the next, I mean, that's why they always say don't compare one study to a different study. But I guess that's especially important with something like AFib, because as you said, there's a lot of AFib that is, like you said, I guess subclinical. It's a perfectly fine yeah. way of saying it. And the need and the need for uh, for treating VT is super high. I made this mention in the in the talk a little bit about how VCs really love the narrative for investing in an AFib technology because of the 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 market is explode is growing and it's you know there's but really if you the real market for a for an ablation technology uh, are those companies that are going to acquire you because the chances of getting in as an independent standalone company and and getting a niche. Uh, where you can grow it organically without also having a mapping system and all that stuff. So Acutus, in my mind, is doing great stuff. They're actually a standalone company, regardless mm -hmm. of, of other uh, uh, things. But to be a startup catheter ablation technology, it's all that market stuff that we talk about. That makes sense if you're actually going to be selling this stuff. But all these startups uh, that have to go in front of a VC, you know, the, the reality is, do you have a technology that Biosense is going to buy? Uh, do you have a technology that Medtronic is buy? And why would they buy your technology and not another? Uh, and and so um, when I see the you know the the support for AFib versus the support for ventricular tachycardia, which seven million people die every year suddenly from an arrhythmia in the heart, and we can only identify a very small portion of those. So our diagnostic capabilities are have a lot of room to grow. Of the people we identify who are at risk that we have documented VT, we don't have a good toolkit. And we didn't have a good toolkit in 1998 for AFib, but now we have a great toolkit. And in 1998, if you had tried to project how big that market was going to be, you wouldn't have been able to do it. The same thing is true for VT. It's a huge need. And, and so I, I'm pretty excited about switching people's attention away from just AFib by itself, which is an important health issue, but it's a nuisance arrhythmia in most patients. Mm -hmm. uh, and whereas VT kills people. And I, so uh, yeah. I'm pretty excited about not only me, but a number of other companies that I've been you know, chatting with are, are becoming much more interested in taking that 10% market, um, which is divided among these and showing that there's there's a real value in building a toolkit that's going to help doctors treat it. Just as an EP, I mean, I imagine that you really don't want to be dealing with 16 different vendors that you, and I don't know how different each device is that it's going to be hard to use. Is it going to be like metaphors thinking like guitar players, how they have like, well, I've got this pedal for this, this pedal for this, this pedal for this. That's right. But maybe you don't want to, maybe, maybe that's not how EP works. So is there kind of like a natural limit to how many people can yeah. be selling EP equipment? Yeah, there will be. Um, that's where the convergence is. So right now everything is chaos. I mean, literally like you have the minority shareholder Boston Scientific with not only having Parapulse, which is extremely successful, at least as a first line, first generation pulse field mm -hmm. technology, but the uh, they have Watchmen and they have Bayless and all of these things. And yet they're the minority shareholders. So mm -hmm. that means that the big guys, which are going to be Biosense, Webster, Abbott, and Medtronic have some potential of losing more and more market share to the little guys. This is, this chaos is going to make 
these big companies buy more than one technology, by the way, you know, right. you know uh, Boston, Pont 3, pulmonary vein isolation, specialized tools in order to get uh, and ended up with Fairpulse. The same thing with having a fair and all these. Eventually, though, you're right. Most labs will have a single mapping system supported and maybe they'll have one other one in the background that they use from time to time. Uh, very, uh, very rarely do labs have more than two or three. The same thing is going to be, and the, the the ablation catheters are going to be heavily linked to those. They won't be open source systems. So it's inevitable that everything is going to uh, smash down again into four or five market leaders that have, you know, a substantial, you know, that, that can survive this paradigm shift that's happening right now. I mean, it's the police to scene era. <laughs> good uh, news for Boston Scientific. Um, like you said, they yeah. they've made some good some good investments, I think. And yeah. like you mentioned, the the Watchman. That's probably something maybe we should pay a little more attention to how that fits together because it's, it's installed by the same guys, right? So right, and and they have CRM, right? So look at the companies that don't have CRM and and who buy stuff for hospitals. It's more and more. It's more less. The doctors are less and less important compared to ten years ago. A lot of the procurement and the decisions about purchases are being made by you know the purchasing officer and the middle management and MBAs and you know and they're looking to bundle you know the, the very expensive CRM business with the equipment that's in the lab and if they can do that it's very it's going to get harder and harder for small guys to get into those labs right. without having a major value proposition and so I think over the next 10 years, we'll still have those opportunities, but uh, eventually, you know, you know, that's a problem with monopolies and big companies and, you know, even our, the healthcare system in the United States, at least, um, is that, you know, it's, it's quickly going into a, a place where innovation will be much more difficult because of really concrete um, uh, market segmentation. Okay. Well, we could talk about that for, for many hours. Obviously that's the, yeah. the thing that I think most people worry about it. I don't want to take up any more of your time. Obviously you're traveling. Um, unless there's anything else you want to talk about, we can wrap it up right there. I, I really appreciate this. this has been a very helpful conversation and illuminating about a couple of different things that people in the cardio space are going to care about. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I always enjoy talking to you. Thanks for listening today. You can read a lot more about PFA and all the developments I talked to Dr. Mickelson about at medtechinsight.com. There you'll also find all of our other podcasts and podcasts from our sister publications such as Script, The Pink Sheet, and HBW. And of course, you can always find all of these podcasts on your preferred podcast provider. Thanks and have a great week. <laughs>